Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today.
Some people have the same background, same opportunities, and for the most part, they have the same capabilities and abilities, and yet they end up miles apart in their Christian character. One of the things that makes some turn out so well and others not so much is that some have learned how to put discerning God-blessed effort into their Christian walk. They've determined with their will to be something for the Lord. Maybe you have heard the catchy little phrase. You've been around the Christian world for a while. You have. They say, let go and let God. It's a phrase that cropped up some years ago, and to some degree it's still popular today. But actually, the Bible never tells us to let go and to let God. In fact, if anything, there are so many commandments that remind us not to let go, but to get going. Sadly, most people misinterpret the phrase, let go and let God. The popular concept is, hey, it's all good. Whether we do nothing, say nothing, or simply allow circumstances to just roll over us, that is certainly not what our Lord taught. Our Lord taught that there is Christian effort to be put into our lives. Consider exactly what Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse number 24, in the wonderful Sermon on the Mount. Here's the Luke version of it. He said that we are to strive. There's a striving that is involved in walking that narrow path. God says we're not supposed to just sit around and wait till we die or until something good happens to our life. Striving means diligence. It means action to get serious about our faith. Now, to be sure, I don't want to leave the impression that it's all about us. Jesus, in that wonderful 15th chapter of the book of John, where he's talking about the vine and the branches, said that apart from him, we can do nothing. That's a pretty strong statement. You can't do anything without me. I would say amen to that this morning. The fact of the matter is, we can't do anything eternal apart from the empowering strength of the Holy Spirit. And yet, that being the case, we're not to simply let go and let God, but we are to strive to work in tandem partnership with the Holy Spirit to apply God's given energy. I'm afraid too many of us are like the little boy who reasoned in his prayer to God. He told God, Lord, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a real good time, just like I am. Now, there are over 800 commandments in the New Testament. We are calling them the commands of Christ. 800 ways to be better boys and girls. And that's what God wants us to be. And we're going to say, yes, Lord, I want to do that for you. So this morning, let's have a word of prayer. The five B's of Romans chapter 12. Father, we thank you this morning. We bless you and praise you. What a privilege, Lord, has been to be praying all week, to seeing all the good done for your kingdom, to be time in your words, so much time. Thank you, God. Thank you for this wonderful group this morning that's gathered together. Now, Lord, I know you have something for us. And for those that are joining us online, across, even around the world, Lord, would you meet with them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Romans. The Apostle Paul was 
the man that God selected to write down what he wanted to write. Paul wrote this while he was in Corinth. It was about three years after the infamous 16-year-old Nero had ascended to the throne as the emperor of Rome. As of yet, the political situation in the what's called the eternal city, Rome, had not deteriorated for those who were Christians there. In the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit decided to give some uh, proactive, preemptive doctrine for the Christians to be able to hold on to in the coming tough times. But not only is it a, an amazing doctrinal book, it's a very uh, strong, practical living book as well for everyday life. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Five practical, important things that we are to be. These are commands of Christ in that they are in the New Testament. Let's go to them together. In Romans chapter 12, verse number 2. First of all, God says we are to be something. We are to be changed, not just let go and let God. We ought to put some effort into being a changed person. Let's read verse 2 of chapter 12 together. Ready, begin. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, friends, it's a fact. God loves us. And He loves us just like we are. And yet, He loves us too much to let us stay that way. He wants us to be transformed. He wants us to be changed. Certainly molded. Absolutely changed. Yes, unless you and I are perfect, which I don't qualify, we need to be improved. Jesus, thank the Lord, is the positive change expert. Bible teacher Ray Stedman told the story of an alcoholic who had become a believer. He was asked by his unbelieving friend, how could you possibly believe all those miracles in the Bible? They just seem so strange. He said, you don't believe that Jesus took water and was able to just transform it into wine, do you? He said, I sure do. Because in our house, Jesus turned wine into furniture. Yes, Jesus is the change expert, to be sure. Now, there are three ways God wants us to be changed. First of all, He wants us to be changed by presentation. Through presenting ourselves. Look at verse number one. That you present your body to God. Offer yourselves to God. We are to willingly submit to God's will. Because, my friend, God will not make you or I do anything. There are no draftees in the Lord's army. Everyone that serves in God's army is a volunteer, for sure. Notice what it says. Present yourself. It doesn't say present your husband or your wife or your children, although we are certainly to pray for them. But it is something we have to do for ourselves. You can't do it for me. Now, this phrase may seem a little strange to us, but it was not at all strange to those Roman Christians who were Jewish people. In their mind, it was crystal clear what he was saying. He was saying, lay yourself down on the altar of God. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. 
Are you willing to sacrifice your desires? Are you willing to kill all of your dreams and your desires? Are you willingly ready to present yourself as a sacrifice? I must tell you that is a decision that was a challenging one for me in my life. Now, that may not be a hard one for you. You might be gung-ho, ready to go, but when I was 19 years old, that was a challenging one in my life. Maybe I was 20. I was attending a small Bible college in San Dimas, California. For a few months, I was going there as a filler before entering into the pre-med program, or the pre-pre-med, I should say, at Loma Linda University, where I had a state scholarship. Now, by most metrics, uh, judging externally, and maybe even if you could look on the inside, internally, I suppose I would have been considered a good Christian. But I knew down deep in my heart that I really hadn't totally surrendered to the Lord. I didn't really have a lot of super bad habits, but I can tell you I hadn't surrendered and presented, as God said, myself to God. The thought of doing whatever He wanted me to do, and the thought of going wherever, maybe yeah, that was even a bigger one for me, and the thought of going wherever He wanted me to go, I'll be honest with you, that scared me. I just didn't know what that looked like. And I just didn't know where if I wanted to just go anywhere in the world or do anything in the world. And so those days turned to weeks, and those weeks turned to several months. And after weeks of just agonizing, I don't know if I just felt I was so fearful of presenting myself to the Lord. Forty-eight years ago, this spring, I pulled over my little 63 Volkswagen on the side of the 210 freeway. There, sat out in a little uh, turnout there, opened my rag top, and I just looked up to the Lord and I said, All right, that's it. I can't take it anymore. Lord, I do now, here and now, totally surrender myself to you. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I surrender myself to you. Someone once asked the seasoned William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, if you had to say what would be the secret of God using you in the way he has, what would it be? The old general, as they call them, he said, he looked through those piercing eyes of his and he said, I believe here's the reason, if there's any one reason, why God used me. Because God has had all of me that there's ever been. There are men with greater brains and greater capabilities, but from the very first day that God gave me a vision of what he wanted to do with the poor in London, I made up my mind that whatever the case, God would have all of William Booth. The only way we can be changed is when we present ourselves to the Lord. We have to say, lock, stock, and barrel, all right, Lord, I'm yours. You've got all of me. Not only through presentation, but through transformation. Look at verse 2. Be transformed. Be transformed. The Greek word is the same as our English word, metamorphosis. Meta, as you know, means big. There's a company, I think, called that now, Meta. And morphous, which means change. God wants us totally changed. The idea is that 
inward attitudes translate into a changed outward action. You'd say, well, I don't really like to change. Well, join the crowd. Nobody likes to change. Author Mark Middleberg said this, the only thing worse than the pain of change is the pain of staying the same when change is really needed. Transformation is a work of God the Holy Spirit when He conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to be fit into that mold, there's going to be some changing necessary. That's what the Apostle Paul stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 8. I love this verse. It says, But we all, yes, we all, all of us, are changed. We are changed. I need to be changed into the same image from glory. You'd say, well, man, it's good now. Well, that is. But God even has more glory that He wants, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. I am so glad that I'm not on my own on this renovation project, this metamorphosis, this complete change. No matter how old I am, I'm glad that God is still working on me. Did you know that the man that I am today is not the man that I'm going to be a week from now? Nor is it a man I'm going to be a year from now or a decade from now. The Lord tarries is coming. Thank God you always get a new man because God is in the change business. Yes, God's in the changing business. If we present ourselves to Him and we ask for that presentation, He does so. And number three, we are changed through revelation. Through revelation. Look at verse number 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. Now that word renewing actually means to renovate. Pastor Luke mentioned about the renovations that are taking place over there. Well, sometimes you have to tear some things out. That's not always easy, but tearing some things out, that's renovation. Now, how do we renovate our mind? How do we get rid of these old things? Well, Jesus made it just as plain as we know. Look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8 16. He said, if you want to be renovated, if you want to have a new mind, a new attitude, a new direction, He said, let the Word of Christ, that's the Bible, let the Bible dwell in you richly. A saturated mind. A renewed mind is a word-controlled mind. And so the question I would ask you is, what saturates your mind? What, what do you think about often? What is it that's often there on the, the first thoughts of your mind? Is it a Bible verse? Is it something you're praying about? What is it that controls your mind? Tomorrow morning when you wake up, what will be the thing that controls your spirit? God said, let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you. On Tuesday morning, what's it going to be? And on Wednesday morning, what's it going to be? Now, going home from church, I hope it's thinking, maybe thoughts about the, the sermon, or maybe uh, the music that was played, or some uh, blessing that somebody shared, or some prayer request. But sometimes, a few days into the week, we just kind of lose all that. And we become consumed about the other things. God wants us all day long to be consumed, to be renovated with the Word of God. I was really blessed a couple of weeks ago when one of our church members 
share with me how a recent message that we put out, when we talked about being sober, well, not especially talking about being free from alcohol, drunkenness, but we were talking more about the inebriation of the world. And he said, you know, the thought of just having a sober mind just gripped me. Not just for that moment, but every day, he said, I just determined that I would let my mind be focused on the Lord. And that's the way it ought to be. So changed by Christ that it's not just our words, but our actions and our attitudes. In fact, so transformed that we don't even realize we're different. And the perception that we leave on others is very different. I love that great historical story in 2 Kings chapter 4. In 2 Kings 4, there was a lady. It's called the woman of Shunem. And she was speaking of the great prophet Elisha. This was a man of God. She had never met him personally, but she had seen him pass by. And in 2 Kings 4, verse 9, here's what she said. Behold, now, I perceive, I've not met him, I've not talked to him, but I perceive that this is a holy man of God, which passes by us continually. There's something about this man. I, I just know it by the way he walks and talks. I don't know. I just get a sense that this is a man of God. Wow. Merely passing by her home, she just knew this was some kind of a guy. I guess the question I would ask you is, when you pass by somebody, what is the feeling that they have? I don't know, one of my daughters, as you know, all these beautiful daughters growing up. And I remember one of the daughters telling me one time, they said that this fella had uh, evil eyes. And I said, what does that mean? She said, I don't, can't especially tell you, but I can tell you he didn't have good intentions. He just had evil eyes. Was, I never said a word, but there's something. What are people sensing about you, my friend? Evil or good, godly. It's just something about you. God says we can be transformed. The power of Christ, the Word of God, when it's in us, it has an effect even on our outside. There are impressions that we leave when we're changed. You say, but man, change is so hard. Yes, it's true. But there's no growth without challenge. And there's no challenge without change. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, be changed. Now, the second thing is, he wants us to be caring. Not only be transformed, but I want you to be caring people. Look at verse 10. One of the most important elements of the Christian life is to be a gracious person. One who displays biblical love and meets others' needs. Let's read verse 10 together, would you? Let's all read it together. Ready? Begin. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. Kindly affection. Now in the English language, that's two words. In the Greek, that's one. It is actually a word, two words together in the Greek, but made into one word. And it's the word that means loving, lovingly loving. Actually, is what the Greek would be, lovingly loving. It's really speaking about natural love, good love, family love. The same word is used, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, wonderful old Paul, was talking to his young preacher friend Timothy. And he said, one of the problems in the last days that you're going to see is that people aren't going to be lovingly loving. Or, as he says here, without natural affection. It's the same Greek word. They're not lovingly loving. They're, it's uh, unnatural affection. And as you and I witness on a day-to-day basis, that is a good description of this world. Unnatural affection going on. Caring Christians, Christians who want to be like Jesus, people who want to be transformed, people who are not just content to just let go and let God, they are characterized that by a loving love that transcends language barriers, skin color, nationality, you name it. Pauline and I count it such a privilege to represent the home church as goodwill gospel ambassadors to the world. We try to take one mission trip a year, maybe two. We've noticed that no matter what environment we go into, and it can be radically different for sure, there is a common bond that knits us together beyond time and culture. That is because we have the same Savior. We have the same parents. We have the same Father. And so God says when we have that kind of love, it is a display that Jesus is in us. Notice what it says even further in this verse. Not only be lovingly loving or kindly affection one to another, but He said, I want you to have brotherly love. Wow. I mean, the Apostle Paul is laying it on thick here. He's saying in just this short little sentence, he said, first of all, I want you to have philostrogos, which is the Hebrew word, the Greek word there. I want you to be lovingly loving, and I want you to have Philadelphia, or brotherly love. So basically what he said was, be lovingly loving with one another in a loving love. That's what he said. He said, I want you to love your brothers and sisters. I want you to love them. I want you to love them like family. I want you to care about them. I want you to pray for them. I want you to be lovingly loving. It is a powerful statement. It's not just a theological dry love. It is fostering a tender, caring, like Jesus would. My friend, this world is not going to see the Lord Jesus until they see the kindness of our hearts. I agree with the little girl who prayed, Oh God, make all the bad people good. And, dear Lord, make all the good people nice. (laughs) Some people, even believers, just seems like they're so obnoxious and so disagreeable anymore. The late-year-old Nancy was in her garden. She was sadly filling a hole when her neighbor peered over the fence. What are you doing there, Nancy? My goldfish died, she sobbed, and I just buried him. The obnoxious neighbor laughed and said condescendingly, Well, that's a really big hole you're digging for a little goldfish, don't you think? Maxie patted down the last heap of earth with her shovel and replied, That's because he's inside your cat. Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 10, As therefore you have opportunity, let us do good to all men. 
You see, opportunities come in our lives to be kind. Do we take them? So many times we just let them go past and we say, man, I should have reached out and been more kind. Folks, you never have to worry about uh, being too kind or too nice. That's not going to be offensive. Trust me. There was a French-born Quaker of last century. His name was Stephen Grillet. He died in New Jersey. It probably would have been unknown had it not been for one paragraph that he's written that perhaps everybody has heard. I shall pass through this world at once. Any good, therefore, I can do, or any kindness that I can show to any human being, let me do it now. Let me not defer nor neglect it. For I shall not pass this way again. I shall not pass this way again. Friend, we should be loving. We should be kind. It makes no difference their theology or doctrine or how nasty they are. I'm going to try to reach out to everybody in caring. How should we do it? I think there's two ways. Let me highlight. First of all, I believe we should be caring in conflict. The Apostle Paul said there is a common characteristic about people who are Christ followers. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24, The servant of the Lord, here's what characterizes them. They must not strive, but be gentle to all men. Are you striving to be Christ-like? Well, of course. That's why you're here today. I do. I'm trying. I not always achieve it, for sure. But I will tell you, you cannot be Christ-like and be cranky. We need to be nice people. It just seems like we're living in such an increasingly rude world. Last year at the Freedom Fest, you might be surprised that even in good churches, great churches really, like the home church, sometimes we get some uh, bad press. I received a letter from a lady who had gotten one of our postcards inviting the community to the Freedom Fest. To her, the postcard, she wrote me a letter, and she was not happy with what she saw in the postcard. To her, it just seemed like this church was all about fun and games, and we've kind of given up our responsibility to talk about God. She said some rude things. <laughs> now, I knew she was off base, because I knew, and I do know, how much prayer, how much uh, effort, how much Bible, how much preaching, how much the gospel is going to go out. I mean, it is... It is a very wonderful event. Now, I was tempted to just kind of not do something or write her back kind of a snarky letter. <laughs> but I asked, Lord, would you just give me wisdom? And so I wrote her back a letter. And I told her something along the lines that I understood her concern. And I, if I had received that postcard, I might feel the same way if I didn't know all that was going on. But... Uh, told her thank you for the reminder to keep our message clear. And so I just said a few nice things and said thank you for taking your time to express your thoughts. Never thought I would uh, get anything back. I mean, 99.9% said as I can ever do. I got a letter back from her. And I thought, oh, brother, you get one nasty letter, that's one thing. You get a second one, oh, boy. But God had worked on her heart. And she said, Pastor, thank you for sharing what you did. She said, I probably shouldn't have even written. She said, my husband had passed away. And I really wasn't feeling it all myself. 
And she said, I just was lashing out at everybody. She said, thank you for taking the time to tell me about your church, and I will be praying for you. And then she uh, gave some other thoughts there, and I was so grateful. You know, even in our conflicts, we need to say, now, we want to have a caring spirit. Not only in conflict, but in conversation. Now, our words can bless or burn. They can hurt or heal. Everybody in life needs a little bit of kindness. Solomon pointed out in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 4, he said, a wholesome tongue is like a tree of life. Just healthy, life-giving. But perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. I heard of a man who went into a little roadside diner for a breakfast. A waitress came out, not looking too happy, hands on her hips. She said gruffly, what do you want? He said, well, I'd like some eggs, but maybe a few kind words. She didn't say anything. She just turned around and went back into the kitchen. After a while, she came out with a plate of some greasy eggs, slapped them down in front of him. He said, well, where's my kind words? She said, don't eat the eggs. (laughs) And it's not just strangers who have a bad attitude. Sometimes I think we have bad attitudes with the ones we love the most. But I will tell you, the religion that doesn't begin at home doesn't begin. Unpleasant words are just not needful. I'm not talking about referring to here needful correction that parents have to give to children and family members. But unpleasant words in a home are like odors. Let's get rid of them. Sometimes we'll walk into the house and we'll say, man, what's that smell? I realize something I cooked usually, but um, or burnt. <laughs> but what is that smell? And I certainly don't want it to be an unpleasant life. The prudent woman in Proverbs chapter 31 found a way to help her mouth. She said, the only way I could cure my sharp tongue, in Proverbs 31 and verse 26, she said, I just went ahead and made a law. I just made it a law. I wouldn't say anything but kind things. A daily law of kindness. A Sunday school teacher asked her class if she knew the difference between kindness and God's promise of loving kindness. One little girl said, I know the difference. She told the teacher that kindness is when, like, you ask your mom for some toast and she gives it to you. Loving kindness when you ask your mother for some toast, and she gives it to you with butter and jelly all over it. And that's the way we ought to be, friends. Not just kind, but lovingly kind, as he says here. Let's put some butter and jelly on those words. And not habanero jelly. All right, number six. I tasted some of that this last week. It was good, but woo. Be changed. Be caring. Be committed. Romans chapter 12, verse number 11. The Christian life is a life of commitment, a commitment to love, a commitment to hating evil. It's a commitment to being passionate for the service of Christ. Verse 10 says, B, verse 11 says, fervent in spirit. Amy Carmichael was an Irish missionary in India. She opened an orphanage. She served for 55 years, wrote 35 books. Poetically, here's what she said. Give me a love that leads the way. Faith that nothing can dismay. 
The hope no disappoints, tire. The passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. God says, be fervent. The word is zeal, like zealous. God wants us to be zealous. It is the word used for boiling water or even metal that's molten, glowing with heat. It is the fact that we ought to be enthusiastic for our services for the Lord. Hardly can contain our excitement to accomplish God's work. That's what I have seen here at this drama. That beautiful singing yesterday was amazing. This is my office study and thinking, man, that is just good. I can't wait. I'm so excited about this week, I'll tell you. God is saying, we ought to, it's a warning against just settling in to our Christian life in a rut. God says, stay zealous. Why? Because most won't. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 12. He said, in the last days, iniquity is going to abound because the love of many people waxes cold. Sad. When I was growing up, I remember some of the old timers giving me something, and they would say, "Hey, Jimmy, put this in the ice box." I remember thinking, "Ice box? What's the ice box?" You know, but uh, well, come to find out, that was the refrigerator. Now, why did they call that? Especially some of the old timers or Midwesterners, why did they call it the ice box? Well, because back in the day, in the winter time, they would take ice and cut it out of the ground. And they'd put it in places in their shed or basement or some place or barn, wrap it in burlap or put um, sawdust around it. And then in the summertime, they'd bring out that ice and cool off the height hot things. Well, I was thinking about that. You know, I've been in some churches, honestly. It feels like that they have a few holdovers from winter. It feels like an icebox in those places. It seems like the people are just packing ice. It just seems like they're so cold and so harsh. You say, well, Pastor, I'm just not an outgoing person. That's just not my personality. Paul is not talking about personality here. He's talking about passion. You can be quiet and passionate for the Lord. The word zeo is to be just excited about serving the Lord and passionate for Him. It means the kind of energy it takes to get the job done. How? Well, first of all, in well-doing. We should be passionate and fervent in well-doing. That's what Paul said in Galatians 4, verse 19. But it is good to be zealously affected. There's that word again. Zealously affected in good things. Not only when I'm present with you. God said, be zealous about what you do for the Lord. Put Put your all into it. Bishop Ryle, that great author, said, He feels that, like a lamp, I am made to burn. Such a one will always find a place for his zeal. If he cannot preach and work, he will cry and sigh and pray with burning strength. In well-doing, whatever God has given us to do, we will give our best. Not only in well-doing, but in witnessing. You talk about somebody who was zealous. Paul was zealous. Look at Romans 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire, my zeal, my passion of my life is for Israel that they might be saved. God said, my prayer. I ask you the question, 
Do you have somebody you're passionately praying for to be saved? You'd say, well, how does that work? I'm not sure how that works, frankly. That's above my pay grade. I will say that God seems to work on the affairs of their life to bring them to a place of salvation. I know they have a free will, and God's not going to break that. But I know somehow that my prayers affect the lost. Paul said, my earnest desire and prayer. Folks, I'm talking about being passionate to witness for Jesus. I'm not talking about being insulting to people, holding up nasty picket signs like those Westboro wackos did a few years ago. I'm talking about making a difference, just being zealous. We have been getting the word out about these drama and things that we're doing. It's been great. But, of course, we get some feedback once in a while that, hey, maybe uh, too many tickets. We had one fellow that called this week and said, um, I got seven flyers on my door. <laughs> he said, could you give a few to somebody else? <laughs> hey, you know what? We're zealous. <laughs> maybe a little too zealous. But the fact of the matter is we need to take up our cross, Jesus said. Take up your cross and be zealous about the things of God. Author A.W. Tozier told about a young man who came to an old saint of God. An old saint of God who knew what it meant to be really sacrificed your life and sold out to God. Who taught on the crucified life. And he said to the older man, he said, what does it mean to have a crucified life as a Christian? The old man thought for a second. He said to the young man, he said, well, it means three things, son. First of all, it means a man who is crucified is only facing one direction. Then the old man scratched his head and he said, Secondly, son, a man that's on the cross, he is not going back. He said his final goodbyes. And third, he said one more thing. A man on a cross, a man crucified, has no further plans of his own. I would say that's three good rules to help our zeal. Keep facing one direction. Never go back and purpose to never have plans of all. You want to be fervent in spirit? Then let's say with that wonderful chorus, no turning back, no turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. God says be changed, be caring, be committed. And then number four, be calm. Romans 12 and verse number 12 Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Be patient. The word there actually means preserving, persevering, excuse me. Bravely enduring, calmly submitting. God has a sovereign plan and His providence is going to be what it is. So I'm just going to go ahead and submit to it bravely and trust Him. The Bible scholars say that the Greek grammar here is... In the present tense, it means this is a habitual practice, not, yeah, I was calm 25 years ago when I had money in the bank and no kids and I felt good, but now I can't ever do anything but just be crazy. Folks, many Christians' lives are just like on life support. They just seem to be running from one crisis to the other. But God says, never quit. Trying. If you do that, you'll win the victory. I like what somebody said about triumph. They said triumph is oomph. 
added to try. And we need to just get out there and keep going, persevering. I get weary. Of course I do. I'm older. The idea of moving to Florida, playing golf and some of those great courses, basking on the beach, it pauses me occasionally, ever so briefly. But then my mind's eye envisions what I might look like in a pair of baggy Bermuda shorts, walking down one of those retirement communities, holding my little poodle dog, and I rethink rather quickly. He said, well, Pastor, aren't you looking forward to retirement? Retirement? I have no idea what that is. Retire from what? Preaching the gospel? I have no plans to do that. Now, we might do some reshuffling here at the church at some point. But I will tell you this. I plan to carry out the calling that God has given me until they carry me out, for sure. <laughs> I <laughs> Thank you. I love what... I always love that what Nehemiah said in chapter 6, verse 11. He said, such, such a man as I flee. <laughs> I love that. I'm, building, I'm busy building walls. Why would I want to run? And who is there? I'm not planning to move to Tennessee. I'm not planning to move to Texas. Should such a man as I run? Uh-uh. I'm not going to do that. I will not go. Friends, this is a life commitment in the ministry. As long as I have my marbles, I plan to be here. You say, well, there's going to be uh, challenges. Of course there's challenges. Author Barbara Johnson wrote, pain is inevitable, but misery, that's optional. The older I get in life, the more I can appreciate my dad's positive outlook on life. He would say, son, I'm to the point in my life where I don't get ulcers, I give them. Just be patient. Keep on going. Be instant in prayer. Endure. Be calm and pray. So many of our problems would just go away if we would just calm down, pray about it, be patient, wait on God. God's got a plan. Our forefathers, you know, they would get upset if they missed a stagecoach. They would say, well, another one will be coming along in a month. Me, I get upset if I miss one section of a revolving door. I mean, man, I'm in a big fuss. We have gotten so impatient in this generation. God says, endure, endure. I love that wonderful heads up that Jesus gave to his disciples in John chapter 16. He said, despite every biblical thing you do, despite every um, action you put into practice, you need to know this world is full of tribulation. He said, in this world... You shall have tribulation. It's not an if. It's going to happen. Folks, it makes no difference how dedicated we are, how much we love the Bible, how much we serve, look like Jesus, act like Jesus. There's going to be trouble. I mean, it's just, that's the way it is. But, but, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. God has got a plan, and He's going to get through this. Just be calm. Carry on. Be changed, be caring, be committed, be calm, and finally, be cordial. As you go through life, let's have a gracious spirit. Verse 13, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality, given to hospitality. Commentator William Newell says that that word given is the word pursuing. It's talking about a culture of hospitality. It literally means... A stranger loving person. 
We say, stranger danger, but God said, actually, we ought to have hospitality. It's the same word you use in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6. Persecuting the church. That's a pretty strong word. The same word in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. I follow after. And then in verse 14, I press on. He said, I want you to be uh, assertive and I want you to really work at being a hospitable person. Back in the first century, there was a great need for home Airbnb sort of. People didn't have a lot of money. There weren't Motel 6s there. Many of the Christians were former slaves, so they needed someone to come alongside and help them and feed them, you know, if they were traveling, especially ministers. The Holy Spirit in Titus chapter 1 said, One of the characteristics of a spiritually mature person, man or woman, is that they are lovers of hospitality. They just love to show hospitality. An American visitor was in an Indian hospital, saw a nurse tending to some sores of a leprosy patient, repulsed them. They said, I would never do that for a million dollars. The nurse answered, neither would I. But for Jesus, I will do it for nothing. For Jesus, I will do it. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 16, Paul prayed, Oh, the Lord, give mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. Why? Because he often refreshed me. He was a refreshing Christian. Paul said, when I needed food, he was there. When I needed a place to stay, he was there. When I needed something refreshing to drink, he was there. He was a refreshing Christian. And may I say, when I read that verse, I thought of this church. You are a refreshing people. And again, that was just so brought to light these last couple of weeks on some of the nice little notes for my birthday. And just a reminder again, thank you for your gracious hospitality. It is a pleasure to be around people like you. I love that example in Genesis chapter 18. Abraham was a man like that. The Bible says in Genesis 18, Abraham was out there watching. And he saw some strangers afar off. And he ran out to find them. And he said, would you please come to my house? (laughs) Man, what a man Abram was. He went out and found them and said, come to my house. And then the Bible says he stood there and watched as they ate, just making sure that everything was taken care of. Pauline and I, as I mentioned, get to go on these mission trips and we get to eat all kinds of places and People are just so wonderful and amazing. One of the places that are so gracious is the Philippines. Now, in the Philippines, I've not, still not figured out how to take care of business there when it comes to food. Because I've discovered that if you don't eat something, they don't feel good because they feel like they served you something bad. So you can't not eat something. But I've also noticed when you eat something, if you eat all of it, they'll come back and fill it up your plate again. And if you ever eat everything on your plate, they'll just keep filling it up. And keep filling it up, keep filling it up. So I still don't know what to do. So I just, uh, I come back, you know. <laughs> but it is, uh, I tell you what, thank God for those precious saints of God who are so hospitable. May we be the same kind of people like that. No matter what, we are hospitable people. The Apostle Paul talked about Gaius in Romans 16 and verse 23. He said, you know what Gaius is like? He's like a a wonderful host. He's a host. 
I got to thinking, wouldn't it be great if each one of us would just consider ourselves a part of God's guest services for a birthday? Pauline and I went over to Half Moon Bay and went to uh, the, uh, what's the name of the place? Yeah, Ritz Carl. We went to the Ritz. And uh, we didn't stay overnight. We just went there for lunch. That's not what we could afford. Barely that, let me tell you. Anyway, we were overlooking the 18th fairway there. And it was a beautiful day. Uh, and uh, the Ritz Carlton uh, pride themselves on uh, their guest services. And if you walk in, even if the person there, the, taking a the car there uh, or at the front door, hello, how are you today, sir? How may I serve you? Then, uh, if you say thank you, they never say you're welcome. If you're, ever, if you're ever there, you'll notice they never say you're welcome. You know what they say? It's my pleasure. I mean, it makes no difference if it's the maid or the parking attendant or the concierge. It's my pleasure. Wouldn't it be great if we could be part of that host services for the Lord where we say, it's my pleasure? I read about a sales manager who got a sales team together to go whiteboard. And right in the middle of that whiteboard, he put one black dot. He looked at his team and he said, team, what do you see? They said, a black dot. He said, what do you see? A black dot. <laughs> How about you? Well, black dot. He said, isn't it strange that all of you saw a black dot when in fact there is so much more white than the one black dot? And too often in our self-concern, all we see is our own self instead of all this world that so many needs. Oh, what would it be like if we could be cordial to others? And if we'll do our part, God will do the rest. A little boy came forward in his church service and wanted to be baptized. He came to the front and the people that met him there said, well, son, tell us how you got saved. He said, well, I did my part. And God did His. Well, the people that were helping there didn't quite like that answer. They said, well, tell us, what was your part? He said, I did the sinning, and God did the saving. <laughs> and friend, that's it. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to my cross I cling. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.